how happy is the blameless vessel's lot. The world forgetting by the world forgot. Eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. Each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. Is there any risk of brain damage? Well, uh, technically speaking, the procedure is brain damage, but it's, it's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you miss. It's time for a little something. I forget. My notes say I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and I'm here with Tyler Boudreaux from Wildcats Minute, and it's time to discuss Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But they're erasing me, and I have no memory of any of this. I can confirm that that is both yours and my identities. I have it tattooed on my body. Handy. <laughs> Although I think that's the wrong film we're talking about. Yeah, tattoos, they work. Have you done that for your time loop? Memento? Yeah. Have you done that one? Oh, no. Memento has not come up as time loop of the week yet now. It is in my notes for my time loop story because I want to have either a montage separate of just him getting different tattoos <laughs> or part of the montage of crazy stuff he gets into is some tattoos he got. And they were going to be tattoos that reference other time loop things. And uh, I would have just get the tattoo that they get in Starship Troopers that says death from above. <laughs> and then they flex their muscles. And then one guy pours whiskey on it, <laughs> which seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> but anyway, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Now you just saw this movie for the first time. Yes. We were talking in the green room about how I have this DVD from a $1 bin at the local record CD and DVD store. <laughs> and I had bought it a long time ago because I knew it was a good movie that I was supposed to see at some point and finally got the excuse to watch it. It was interesting, though, because at some point in my life, my dad had explained to me the premise of the movie, huh. which includes the sort of not twist, but like the takeaway of the movie, which is like they've forgotten each other, but they decide to go for the relationship anyway. Yeah. So I knew that that was the premise of the movie, but obviously to enjoy the movie as a whole was wonderful. And I particularly liked the opening scenes, which are actually the last thing that occur chronologically, I right. suppose. I thought that was probably the strongest part of the movie in terms of acting and character and stuff like that, which is interesting. And I guess something we'll talk about later. I will say my final thought on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind as a whole is that the other two Charlie Kaufman movies I have seen, which are Adaptation and Being John Malkovich, okay. I like a little better. That's fair. This was probably my least favorite of the Charlie Kaufman movies I've seen, which is weird because this seems to be the one in people's highest estimation as a whole, Yeah, which I thought was unusual. But again, as we've talked about, it could be the crimes of the future effect where I expect things to be more fucked up than they actually are. <laughs> I thought this movie was supposed to be weirder than it was. Okay. I had seen like the frame of Jim Carrey small under a table. <laughs> and I maybe assumed that there was more weird stuff like that. Uh, okay. But yeah, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Let's talk about it. Yeah, we're in minute 28. Joel is at Lacuna. He is in Mirzwiak's office. And Mirzwiak is just explaining to him that their files are confidential. Mr. Barish. So I can't show you evidence. Suffice it to say that Miss, uh, and he looks down at the card, Miss Krasinski was not happy and she wanted to move on. And we hear the erasure noises that we'll get used to later in the film as we cut to Joel recounting this conversation to Robin Carey. I do love some Polish representation in the last <laughs> name department. Yeah. Especially when it's not like the butt of a joke. But that's mostly in like kids' movies where like you have a wacky last name. Look at this guy's name. <laughs> and like Merswiak is also 
rather unique. Mm-hmm. In college, I wrote for the satire paper. And so we'd have to come up with these last names for the characters in the satire articles to have. And it's always like, okay, do I go for something really on the nose? Or do you just like come up with a random last name? And then, you you know, you try to make the names diverse, right? Because you don't want all of them to have like stereotypical white last names. <laughs> and you also have to like really think out of the box or like invent your own name. And so I imagine Charlie Kaufman just like sitting at his desk, like, what's the perfect last name for this character to have, which like sounds new and weird because I'm a new and weird guy and and I'm writing my movie, but also could be convincingly a last name. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no one in this movie has a quote unquote stereotypical or normal name. Yes. I was going to say normal and I'm like in air quotes. Yeah. Quote unquote normal last name. You know, bearish is maybe the most normal because even Mary has, I forget what her last name is. They say it later. Uh, I think it's Mary quite contrary. I think no, it's her last uh, name. Svivo. Oh, I'm not even sure it's a name. <laughs> no offense if that's your name. Sorry. But yeah, they're Mirzwiak and Kruzinski. And- Again, we get kind of like um, not a super existential minute of this film like we had with Groundhog Day. Yeah. But more of like just establishing premise. I was shocked by how late in the movie this film's title and credits appear. Yep. It's almost like that episode of The Haunting of Hill House, where like literally like 40 minutes have gone by, then the title (laughs) sequence rolls. You're like, whoa. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about this movie is that it treats that beginning as if it's a separate sort of story, which had to be shortened. I don't know if you caught this in the editing, but like when he is at Clem's apartment, that conversation was edited from something that would have been like three, four, five times the length. And so you get weird cuts where it feels like she said something funny, but then she looks sad. And there's different things that it works as like this movie about memory where stuff's not always exactly how you think it should go. But it also, there was a lot of dialogue cut from the beginning of this movie. I think the beginning of this movie is so strong. I feel like the characters are really working. Their emotions are really palpable yeah and you know when they're talking on the train and you're like trying to suss out like what's going on between these two people like Uh are they flirting are they arguing like it's really evocative filmmaking yeah like when she gets frustrated with him and sits down in her seat but then it's like she has this sense that this should be working better so she gets back up and just keeps talking and it, it, it works so well one of the things that i would criticize the movie for is during the majority of the like the movie kind of sets up where it's like it's act two is kind of like the longest possible act two of a movie okay. where they're in, in the memories and stuff. Jim Carrey's memories. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have his character name retained. Joel. 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 Yeah. Like Billy. Okay. Mm-hmm. When we get to into that part, it becomes like so much of the premise and like going in and out of the dreams and cutting back to Mark Ruffalo and Kirsten yeah. Dunst. Which, other than the sort of twist ending with Kirsten Dunst that delivers the brilliant blow of the climax of the movie at the end, yeah, I really didn't care for the plot of the memory doctors. Okay. I, like, I understand its purpose and I liked what it led to, but I was like, give me a break with this. I really liked the beginning with the characters, and I think especially Joel's character gets lost in the middle of the movie. We don't know anything about him. We don't know what he does for a living. It doesn't feel like he has a personality or a character, which I get. 
I get if he's like meant to have a depressive personality where it doesn't feel like he can really exude himself or be somebody and he doesn't feel like he's really found what he is. I get that. But I feel like in like a movie that's allotted as like being a great romance movie, it's like, what do we know about this guy? Like, what are we supposed to like about him other than that? He's like a sad sack that we have sympathy for and maybe have an innate love for because he's played by Jim Carrey. I don't think Jim Carrey's doing his best acting in this movie either. He's obviously done brilliant emotional turns, and I don't think this movie provides a strength of his acting, Uh, except for in the beginning where I think things are working really well. I can understand that. I disagree with a lot of what you said, but it's also it's subjective stuff. I think I get why the middle would do that, though, is it becomes very plot driven for his character. So who his character is doesn't matter as much then because it's just he's getting erased and this is the one thing he wants. And so that's all that matters. And it's how much crazy scenes can we stick that in and make it work. But I think by that point, I I hope, or for me at least, I bought in yeah. to who the character is. So I'm okay with it. He also reminds me of myself <laughs> because he's kind of this depressed guy who draws. Oh, he does like to draw. Yeah. I like that. I was thinking about the journal as being like something about how there's nothing going on in his life because he literally never writes about anything. But the drawing is a fair point. Well, but he does write about stuff. He just had to rip out two years of it because it was all about Clem. Oh, oh, I see. I see. I understand that now. But the idea that like lean into the drawings a little more like like maybe part of it is like he realizes that he's more creative than he thinks. He thinks drawing is just doodling and wasting time. But he realizes that he has a talent for it and that this is something he should embrace about his personality instead of being ashamed of. I feel like that could have been more pronounced in the movie, maybe. Maybe. Or show us that that's maybe that's what his job involves, even. Yeah. Like he's already kind of made something from it. Yeah. Because that's not clear. Yeah. They never tell us what he does, just that he wears a suit and takes a briefcase (laughs) when he goes to work. That's all we know. Yeah. But anyway, he's reiterating the words of the doctor. Yeah. As we cut to Robin Carey's kitchen. Yes. And we hear Mears react for another line as he says, we provide that possibility. We hear hammering, <laughs> which we won't immediately know what it is. And then Joel repeats what he said. Ms. Krasinski was not happy and wanted to move on. We provide that possibility. And we get a wider shot where we see that Carrie is, looks like she's making coffee. And then she grabs like sandwich stuff off the table. She's putting stuff away. And I notice now, for some reason, one of the cabinets doesn't have a door. It's just got plastic. <laughs> it was very bizarre. I think maybe it's just meant to make the house feel more realistic. Well, yeah. Just like when we cut over to Rob's little corner. I love it. looks like <laughs> he's tucked into the corner behind the refrigerator. <laughs> there is no space over there. Yeah. But he still has a whole table and a tool thing hanging on the wall. Yeah. It's like sort of like a backdoor mudroom. Like <laughs> maybe at some point this house was like split into two and this used to be like a useful entrance. <laughs> But now it's kind of like they don't even use that entrance because it just goes back to the back door to nowhere. Yeah. And so now it's kind of like a hallway cubby space where it's just like a pile of shoes that no one ever uses and his little craft table. Yeah, which is a mess. But before we get to his table, though, we got Joel being a little problematic. So he's like, what the hell is that? And then he calls himself the nicest guy she ever went out with. <laughs> I'm a nice guy. Which yeah, might be true. To that you, one compliment you have to she gave say him, it. Yeah. problem well he's not saying i'm a nice guy all those other guys are assholes i think he's not doing the thing where it's like complaining about 
like doing the misogynistic thing where you complain about how women are only interested in bad boys. Yeah. He's trying to affirm himself more than put other people down. I think literally, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to argue against the nice guy philosophy, but it really did feel like he was just saying like, I feel like I'm a good person. Like he's really insecure. Well, right. Especially at the moment. I talked about this last week. He is still in the middle of like heartbreak and pain and he doesn't, he can't do anything. Lacuna is not a good idea for him, but he goes with it almost for the same reason she does is in the moment. Why not? Cause he's broken. So yeah, I get that. He's trying to sell himself as the nice guy. Yeah. Of course he's talking to what I don't think the movie has confirmed this, but I keep operating on the assumption carries his sister and her husband. I assume they were just friends from college or maybe like the only other two people in his life that he like. Well, he, he's definitely to. closer to Carrie than Rob, though, because he seems kind of annoyed by Rob a couple times. Oh, OK. I assume that Jim Carrey and David Cross would be buds because they're both alternative comedy people. Although Jim Carrey's not even alternative comedy, but no, no. <laughs> that's meta analysis. I think your reading is right. The sister angle is interesting, yeah, because it adds context to the, like, they're not even really friends with him. He just kind of tags along sometimes. Yeah. I don't love the overall treatment of Clementine in the movie. Mm, like, fair. it goes without saying that, like, the dyed hair manic pixie dream girl is a trope. Yeah. And this is coming from someone who loves Scott Pilgrim versus the world and will defend that movie a lot just because I like it. And I want it to be less problematic than it is. Yes. Well, even it, I mean, it knows it's problematic, just like this one does. But lampshading your problem doesn't mean the problem isn't there. Yeah. And maybe it is trying to just be a realistic take on the world. Like, there are these sort of aloof women out there who dye their hair. And maybe that's an experience that Charlie Kaufman has had and was trying to reproduce. Especially because dyeing your hair wasn't as common in 2004 as it is now. Right. And so that signifies something more of an eclectic personality that this woman would have. Yeah. But it it just feels kind of tokenizing and like, especially the idea that she's, you know, she's impulsive, right? She doesn't care about other people's feelings. She doesn't care if she's a little bit of an asshole. She does things on a whim. I think it plays a little better in Scott Pilgrim versus the world where Ramona, you at least see that she's been hurt by the world and she does a lot of these things as a coping mechanism. We don't really get a lot about Clementine's backstory. It's fair. Yeah, we don't get backstory for either of them, really. I get the impression that Clem, like when she has to tell him, like she claims she puts her, per- well, he says it, but she kind of agrees, puts her personality on with a paste. Like she just says that <laughs> because it's an easy way to explain a lot more complex psychological problems she's got going on. And she, like, I'm impulsive, but she's not that impulsive. She does do some things more impulsively than he does, but she also is in a two-year relationship with him, you know? This is a thing that happens a lot in movies where it's like, it always casts the woman as the one who feels like she's stuck and can't get out of the rut Mm. and like then goes and cheats where usually, you know, just like statistically men are more likely to cheat in the relationship than women, but movies would not have you know that. (laughs) Well, it's because up until still, I guess. 
most screenwriters are still men. So yeah, yeah they're not going to play it that way. Yeah. Because they want to write about that girl who cheated on them. And so that's yeah. the story they're telling. Or the girl who didn't want to settle down with boring old me and wanted yeah. more adventure. Like she didn't realize that I was a stable guy who was going to take care of her and be nice. Right. I write in a journal and draw. I'm perfectly nice and stable. Yeah. <laughs> and she's the one who didn't know what she was losing. She wanted all the adventure. Yeah. I just watched Licorice Pizza and I had a kind of distaste for that aspect of that movie of like Alana Haim kind of settling down with the guy who was always there for her, uh-huh. which wasn't true for the, the boy character in that movie in the first place. Right. And I just thought he was a shitty Max Fisher <laughs> from Rushmore. <laughs> That's a great description. Rushmore for a long time I've listed as my favorite movie. And I just think it's such a perfect balance of like a man who is wreaking havoc on the people in his life. Definitely. Yeah. But a man who like goes through a depressive episode and you genuinely feel that like he is disconnected from the world around him and he knows that it's his fault and he feels shitty about it for a long time Yeah, and has to work to make the relationships in his life better. I like Rushmore for those reasons. It is still kind of shitty to Miss Cross as a female character in a Wes Anderson movie. I don't think she's as non-agentive. <laughs> I think she has more agency than you might think on a rewatch of the movie. But in a movie like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, it's like, ah, yes, we have our man who's like trying to figure out his way in the world, but is kind of depressed and isn't figuring out his thing. And he thinks the woman's going to be the what gets him out of it. Well, it's kind of a trope in Kaufman, his scripts, is there's usually a central male And then there's this female that is either literally a fantasy (laughs) or in some way is fulfilling a fantasy, potentially. And then it's like, but what happens when you get that fantasy? Does it go well? And I think this movie falls early enough in his writing that it plays with that in a realistic way. Because like, yeah, he found a girl that fit perfectly with this like thing he needed, this, you know, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. But also, if that girl is real, she's going to have problems. She's not going to settle very easily. Yeah. And you're going to have to deal with that. Yeah. And so it might be a trope, but I think this movie plays it as if it were real. Yeah. Which kind of works. I don't think it does enough to like be a satire of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, though. Well, to be fair, when this movie came out, we weren't using that term very much yet. Yeah. And the term has been redacted by the person who coined it. Yeah. I still think it's a useful tool, much like the Bechdel test. Like it's a way to think about analyzing art, much like, you know, Freudian psychology is a way. <laughs> my my favorite thing is usually when I have to come up with examples of Manic Pixie Dream Girls is the ones I think of quickly are like you said, Ramona Flowers, Clementine Krasinski. Summer. Yeah. 500 Days of Summer. And it's like characters where they are that, but. Also, they're only that because the movie is from the guy's perspective. But the movie is not saying they are that. The movie is like, no, that's a real person. He's just an idiot. (laughs) Yes. And I'm like, cool. And I love that those are the examples I always think of first because I'm like, I like that. I like the ones that are picking it apart. That actually is a thing with our historical understanding of movies. If you think of Westerns, Mm, right? Yeah. There were you know, a thousand Westerns made where quote unquote cowboys and Indians have it out. What are the ones that we remember? The searchers where John Wayne plays an asshole, just the worst possible person, a racist asshole who comes to terms over time that 
his outlook on Native Americans has been objectively terrible. Yep. Arguably, depending on if you feel like his character was redeemed over the course of the movie. The other ones that we remember are ones like High Noon, which is the the Western that John Wayne hated. Yeah. Yeah, I did a month of Westerns for my blog, and I watched 30-something Westerns, I forget, in a month, because it was more than one a day, a couple of the days. And most of them didn't actually involve any Natives. But these were like the movies that came up as the Westerns that were still being talked about. And I'm like, how do we have this trope that was such a thing, yet isn't in the things we remember most? I think we have this sort of like selective memory, like how we've basically culturally erased all of the literal minstrel shows from our film history. There are traces of it. We just have to keep reminding ourselves they existed. Yeah. Yeah. We have this sort of selective memory, but to repeat what you were saying, the idea that like the version of things that we remember is not like the most stereotypical version of it, but the one where it comments on itself yeah like even blazing saddles is one of the more memorable westerns right of all time just because it's a parody of a western yeah and maybe it was just the expectation thing of like i thought this was going to be more or crazier and it was in fact very human and very very simple as wacky as the concept of this movie is it is very straightforward which works for a charlie kaufman thing also earlier, it was interesting. You were talking about the sort of Charlie Kaufman tropes with women. Yeah. And I thought it, it works so well in being John Malkovich, where your John Cusack character just gets absolutely called out on his bullshit yep. throughout and a- adaptation where he like, he has the fantasy of going on a date with the waitress. And then it's like, uh-huh. that gets totally cut down. I was thinking, oh, I like those examples because it's him being aware of the inherent misogyny. And I was going to say, like, see, that's why this movie is less well thought out. But I think you turned me around. I think just because it's not calling its male protagonist, like, explicitly misogynistic with, like, a joke or, like, that's not, like, the message of the movie. Right. Doesn't mean that it's, like, ignoring it. I think the movie definitely is still aware of it. It's just imagining a world where we acknowledge these things. We acknowledge the problems that we have and we try to work our way through them instead of just punishing ourselves. Definitely. Which is what makes this movie so hopeful. Speaking of going through shitty things and coming out on the other side, hopeful. It can be. And in this movie, it is. That's the note it ends on. As for the rest of this minute, we get to see what Rob is doing. Because he says, ow, fuck. And Carrie says, God, Rob, give it a rest. (laughs) I'm building a birdhouse. Yeah, I am making a birdhouse. No context as for... But even funnier in the script, he says, I'm making my birdhouse, which I think would have been funnier. But he says, I'm making a birdhouse. Like, she knows what you're doing. She can see you. I love that that's his argument back. Like, that does not provide any justification. Like, you're the one who swore because you hurt yourself. Like, if anything, she should have said, honey, you're making a birdhouse. It's Maybe not don't that try to hammer deal. nails while you're smoking a joint. <laughs> He's the one arguing like, I'm doing something peaceful. I'm building something. <laughs> Give me a break. I'm relaxing here. And the very real experience of a grown man trying to do something involving construction, being shitty at it, yep. and then swearing is, is a very relatable experience. 
and he's got his messy little work area with the table is cluttered. <laughs> For some reason, the table has sides that have been attached to it with tape. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe to keep stuff from falling off. I don't know. He's a mess. And as for the set, other than the plastic over the one cabinet, I noticed the fridge, and I think this is deliberate, has three different magnets that are vans, a cleaning company. I couldn't quite read them, but they're like ads for companies. And that's the same thing this is doing with Lacuna is treating it as this, like, there's just this company that comes and does stuff for you. That's a very interesting way of like, as we talked about in Groundhog Day, like just putting motifs in the background where you don't really see it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause it also could be, that's just what Joel is seeing in this moment. Is he's seeing Vance. He's connecting it because they just started erasing his memories. And he sits down and Carrie, she's talking to him while she's putting things away. She says, what can I say, Joel? You know, Clementine, she's like that. She's impulsive. And in the script, she's actually tells specifically Clementine met some woman online at the supermarket. The woman told her about this company, Lacuna. She decided to erase you almost as a lark. So a lark, even more specific than just who might live in a (laughs) birdhouse, right? It all connects. You know, Charlie Kaufman was like, "Ooh, I'm clever." (laughs) 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 Yeah, that line being the most indicative of like, oh, you know, she's a woman. She does things that men don't understand because she's fickle. Yeah, exactly. And of course, they have Carrie say it because she's a woman. She gets to. (laughs) Yeah, it's not problematic if a woman says it. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Not. Um, I feel like we broke down this conversation about Clementine enough. Yeah, but it does feel lackluster that it's like, why did she do it? Maybe because she's running away from pain. We don't know why she has the instinct to run away from pain. Is that an established thing in her life? We don't know. And maybe we're not supposed to know. Maybe because we're supposed to so fully live in Joel's perspective. Yeah. The most backstory we get for her is her monologue under the covers in the bed later. And that's all we get. Yeah. It's his perspective. Even her through the rest of the, like half the movie is his version of her. It's what he remembers. Yeah. That's interesting to think about. Yeah. The Clementine that's in all of the memories isn't even her own character acting on her own agency. It's like memories of her. That's how he remembers her acting. Yeah, that is weird. That's a weird thing about the movie. Yeah. It both excuses some of the things it does and makes it a little problematic. Because it's this love story. Would you say that this movie is like a romance, like depicting a romance or meant to? Yes. Okay. Or meant to be a love story? Well, it, it is sort of deconstructing one. Yes. It's not a stereotypical one, yeah. but it is one. It feels weird because Joel's having all these memories and in his memories, she wants the relationship to work, right? Yeah. And especially the whole meet me in Montauk line, which is like, oh, she secretly wants this to work out. But that's in, but that's his, in his, that's something she literally said in a memory, right? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Well, maybe we're not meant to know. Maybe it's it's blurring the line because they have they do have dialogue that couldn't have been in that memory. So sometimes yeah. it's hard to gauge what that comes from. And it is indicative that they do meet on the beach in Montauk. There's something that is drawing these people to this place to be together. Well, it's where they met. So for her having him erased, it's also the last thing that got erased. And she enjoyed meeting him. Yeah. So in her version, in her head, we don't see it, but we know it had to have happened. She also said. You know, meet me in Montauk. Yeah. Or he did. I guess at the end of the day, you can't base entire relationships off of like the initial joy of the meet cute. Right. You know, it's the little things you do together that make marriage a joy. It's not the meeting and it's not the wedding and it's not the vacations. 
It's the small moments that you cook together or you sleep in the same bed together. You drive to work together, right? It's about finding joy in those little things. And if that's not where they were finding joy, then maybe they should reconsider the relationship. But at the end of the day, I do love the denouement of the story that they both realized that forgetting was a mistake and they want to try again. Yeah. I think that is a worthwhile message to send with the caveat that like, please understand that relationships are not built off of initial attraction. Yeah. And now they know that there's going to be problems. So they might have a better shot. If only they could remember what the problems were. Well, they have the audio descriptions. Oh, okay. Okay. They have yeah. the tapes. Okay. They have the files. So <laughs> they, they know in their own words, even if they can't remember it, what was wrong. I mean, isn't that what astrology is for, right? <laughs> I know I'm a Somewhat, Capricorn. Yes. I know you're a Scorpio. Yeah, but you got to know more than just your sun sign or you're not going to have enough information. Like, I don't know, remember my astrological signs, but I'm pretty sure if we're not compatible, it's not going to work out, right? There are other things in life that will tell us if we're going to work out, Yeah. right? Yes, supposedly. <laughs> Movies tell me so, and I believe it because <laughs> they've never steered me wrong. Yeah, the stars, the stars know. <laughs> Yeah, so the end of this minute, we cut to him in his car by the green fence, which is where he was sobbing when the credits first started earlier. That was so cool. When that jump cut happened earlier, that was awesome. He's hitting the steering wheel. He's saying, why, why, why? We get a wider shot, and we see it's next to the drive-in. At the drive-in, yeah. Although we don't know anything about them going to the drive-in until later. The driver's side door is damaged, so we can guess at where in the timeline this is. But at this point, we don't even know the timeline's messing up yet. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Which is fun, half an hour into a movie. Yeah. It was weird because I was like, how much of this am I figuring out? Because I knew the premise coming into the movie. Right. That's what sucks. I was like, maybe I would have been more impressed if I had gone into this completely blind. Do you feel that way? Like, if you could go back in time and rewatch your favorite movie for the first time, would you? That has come up in this because we've talked about whether you'd want to erase things. And no, because it changed now by how that memory interacts with all the other ones. Or is there a movie that you would want to go back and see for the first time? Not in that sense. No. Because I think like, it's very simple. Men in black, (laughs) right? Okay. Imagine watching that movie for the first time, like came up before I was born or around when I was born. I watched that movie on TV. I probably started watching it halfway through. Like I knew what the premise was. I knew what the twist was. Can't tell you if I've ever sat down and watched that movie front to back, but that movie does have some interesting twists and turns. Like it's kind of an adventure. It's got a little bit of a mystery to it. It's got great jokes and great performances. Like just a very simple movie like that to just like watch front to back and be like, wow, what a fun like adventure of a movie. Like, but also not one that like you're forming an intimate relationship with. That's fair. So like movies like that or movies like just like straightforward mysteries like Knives Out or something. I'd also would hope it'd be something recent. Or something I'd seen recently. Yeah. So that there's less intervening references and other things that would affect the memory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The end of the minute, he goes back to Lacuna and nothing really happens because we just see. Yeah. The dialogue hasn't really caught up. Yeah. It's just Mary saying, don't wait as we don't <laughs> even see Joel or Mary. We see Mary's react is talking to some woman. And then minute 28 ends. Thank you, Tyler, for being on this week. And if listeners want to hear you talk about other things, what can they look for? Thank you, Robert. It feels great to talk about these movies. 
and to get to watch these movies. If people want to find me, check out my minute by minute analysis of high school musical called Wildcat Minute, which you can find by looking up the amateur nerds in the podcatcher of your choice. Thank you for listening. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for more Eternal Sunshine. And you can follow all three shows on one feed. Just search an existential trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Spotless Minute. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. This is it, Joel. It's gonna be gone soon. Okay, we'll see I know. What do we do? Look, we're going off. Can you hear me? I don't want this anymore. I want to call it off.